Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. The fact is your son one day will have a vehicle show up in his driveway and pick him up and take him to work. And then it'll drive off and do five other things and come back and get him at five o'clock, take him to the grocery store, take him home, and then take off to do five other things overnight, telling you to come back and get him at seven o'clock in the morning. That reality, that capability and technology exists. It exists with our partnership with Cruise, and we're going to be building on that in this decade strongly. Hello, I'm Tim Troop Noonan your host for Horsepower to Hyperloops. And that was GMI grad Gerald Johnson, Executive Vice President of Global Manufacturing and Sustainability at General Motors, talking about just one of the mobility technologies he and his colleagues at GM are helping to bring about. In our discussion today, Mr. Johnson talks about the push to build more efficient combustion engines over the next 10 years in the transition to electric vehicles, GM's commitment to an electric future, the impact autonomous vehicles will have on our day-to-day life, and how sustainability, diversity, equity, and inclusion will be critical strategies in reaching all these goals. Gerald Johnson, thank you very much for joining us today on Horsepower to Hyperloops. We are talking a lot about today General Motors' commitment to EV and electrification and Yet, just recently, in the past week or two, you were in Flint, I believe, to announce the investment of almost a billion dollars in four plants in Flint, Defiance, Ohio, uh, Rochester, New York, and Bay City, Michigan, to support combustion engineering and combustion engines. So talk to me a little bit before we get into GM's long-term commitment to EVs about how that investment fits into the overall strategy. Sure. Glad to be here, by the way, Tim. So General Motors is committed to our mission of creating a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we believe in the all-EV future, and we're committed to that, to that journey. But we're also committed to our customers. And we have a loyal internal combustion engine customer base in trucks and SUVs, and we are committed to serving those as we make this transition to our EV future. So the almost $1 billion that we announced uh, last week covering a next generation uh, small block V8 that will be produced in Flint and components will come out of Defiance in, in uh, Rochester and, and Bay City. That's to make sure, though, as we go over this horizon towards an all EV future, that we're still able to satisfy all of our customers who are currently still interested in an internal combustion engine. And that's something that we think we can do. Our EV strategy is a growth strategy. It's additive in the meantime, while we build our way to an all EV future. It's a transitional move, it sounds like in a way, but talk to me a little bit more because this is a big story about those. I understand it is Basically, it's not building new plants. I want to be clear about that. It's going into existing plants and retooling and creating more efficient engines. So drill down a little bit uh, for me, if you will, about what 
exactly you're doing beyond that, how this is going to affect uh, these cities, these engines, how much more efficient they're going to be, et cetera. We have a long storied history with our small block V8 dating back you know, to 1950s. The current generation, Gen 5, as we call it, we're going to update to Gen 6. It will be more efficient. It'll also be more uh, cost effective. And we're proud to be able to make the investment in the workforce and the teams that we have already in place at Flint Engine. And you're right, we will utilize the facility at Flint and we will modify and add new processing capability inside Flint Engine plant and do likewise for uh, the components that will come out of Bay City and Rochester and the castings from Defiance. I will also acknowledge that in Rochester and in Defiance, there's a portion of that investment that will enable them to support EV battery and uh, EV castings in Defiance. So it's, it's holistic, but it's representative of this transition window, as you mentioned, that we know that we have a 12 to 15 year horizon to an all EV future. There are a lot of customers we have to satisfy with internal combustion engines between here and there, and we are committed to serve our truck and SUV customer base uh, with those engines. And so a new Gen 8, excuse me, a new Gen 6 V8 is right, timely, and appropriate for where we are in the transition. Now, you said truck and SUV. Does it also involve, are those exclusively the models that these engines are going to be in, or are they going to be broader than that? Yeah, it's broader. I use truck and SUV as just the major customer base, but we, just like our current Gen generation of V8, we will utilize this generation of V8 across the portfolio. Well, that's illuminating because you hear these things like California says they're not manufacturing anymore at, after 2030. So you get this sense of a, a turn on a dime and it's, it's not that way. And it's transitional, which makes a lot of sense from the individual consumer standpoint. It's going to take time to shift over. I still have internal combustion engine cars. I have a hybrid. So I can see where that's going. So talk to me a little bit about that transition and let's move into the vision for the future. It's amazing to me as a consumer that we can even envision a future that's fully EV. And to that end, when are we going to get to fully EV? Because right now the infrastructure is not there. It's a challenge in a way to plug in here or there or what, for the hybrids and for the batteries. I know they're building battery plants and so on. So talk to me about the transition, how that's going to work and when we're going to get there, wherever there is, however you define it. Well, I, I can't speak to it. Everyone's going to get there, but General Motors is going to get there in the U.S., and our light-duty vehicles by 2035. That's our projection. That's our commitment and aspiration. But the journey, if you just think back three, four, five years ago, where EVs were then, and you look at where they are now, they were 2% of the market then. They're closer to 10% of the market now. And every projection, every projection is that they're going up. Everyone can argue about how much, but everyone's projection is that they're going up. And we are aligned with that forecast. So the way we're going to do this, Tim, is... In some cases, like our plant down in Spring Hill, Tennessee, we're going to build in parallel a Cadillac XT6 and Cadillac Lyric. And we will adjust our volumes between internal combustion XT6 and all EV Lyric based on customer demand in the same segment. So there, much of our strategy is parallel. But now in factory zero, there'll be 100% of an EV plant. And there we're going to produce a multitude of products, the Hummer, the E Silverado, the E uh, Sierra, et cetera, down there. But that'll be dedicated. So 
Our plan is to convert completely some plants as timing allows for it, but in some cases also to build in parallel an internal combustion engine a vehicle and an EV engine propulsion vehicle in the same facility. That's how we're going to manage the balance between the two over the transition. But to restate, the end goal is that by 2035, you are uh, producing entirely EV vehicles. You're not doing the internal combustion. So what happens to the four plants right now in, what is that, 13 years? You've retooled them for internal combustion. I suppose you'll retool them again to meet the needs of the EV. Is that correct? Absolutely, Tim. We've been very clear that we want to make sure everyone has an opportunity to go with us into this transition. And so for the most part, we know how to do that with assembly plants. We know how to do that with the transmission versus a drive unit. And the engine plants, we will utilize battery assembly and or opportunities in one of our other facilities to help us make that transition to EVs. But we have an opportunity for everyone. That's our commitment. Now, the batteries, I know there are other companies making batteries. If I'm not mistaken, are you producing batteries on your own or are you in partnership with other companies producing batteries or are you buying batteries? Are they suppliers? How does that work? Right now, we're doing both. We're buying batteries currently that uh, go into our current Bolt EV and Bolt EUV. We buy those batteries from LG. And we also have a joint venture with LG called Altium. And that plant just started up recently in Ohio. We have a second plant under construction in Tennessee and a third plant under construction in Lansing within that partnership. So we want to be able to bring that technology and bring battery capacity into our processing uh, with that partnership. So obviously, you're not talking about this model or that model. I'm sure you will lead with some models, uh, more EVs than others, but ultimately all models. Huh? You know, this is kind of a basic question, but I'm sure people wonder how many models of truck, SUV, smaller cars does, does what you, do you talk about when you talk about that sort of uh, metric? Well, when I think about what we've already announced and what we're getting done yet this year, we already have an EV Hummer. We already have a Bolt EV, small crossover SUV. We have the Cadillac Lyric. We have a Bright Drop van all on the road right now. We've announced that we're going to launch an Equinox this year and a Blazer this year. Our goal is to make sure that we have a portfolio that's broad enough for everyone to participate at their respective market segment or market need and price point. Uh, didn't mention our e-Silverado that we'll also launch this year. So we are building out a portfolio that allows everyone to get in with the same functionality that they need for their family or for their business with an EV option. And then we're going to continue to grow that as we go on into the second half of the decade. Will that involve an expansion of personnel? I mean, is it, do you build EV cars with less or more or the same amount of personnel than you did with combustion engines? The way we see it, EV, the personnel required to build EV vehicles is about the same. It's very close and similar in assembly plant. And when you account for battery assembly instead of engine assembly, and you account for battery cells and instead of cylinders and components, ultimately the personnel required to build an EV is about the same as it is today for an internal combustion engine. And I'm sure as time goes on, obviously, you're going to be getting new and young employees. 
But it occurs to me just in the course of this discussion that you're going to have to also make a significant, and I'm just guessing, investment in retraining some people to work on the newer vehicles. Is that a piece? Oh, absolutely. But yeah. uh, Tim, that's no different than what we do today. Right. When I launch a new vehicle in whatever facility, uh, the small block V8 that we're going to launch in Flint that we've been talking about, we're going to train people to be able to do that work. Now, Flint Engine will have some experience with engines, so it shouldn't be a far leap for them. But in any case, when we're doing a new program, it takes retraining of the workforce to understand exactly how that vehicle builds or how that component set builds in order for them to understand how to do it with quality and safety every time. Well, now that's really one question people have is there's, and you and I talked about this briefly, people are very aware, particularly people that are about to buy, that there are federal subsidies for purchasing electric vehicles. And they're also very aware that certain administrations are more favorable to subsidies than other administrations. And of course, we're in a Democratic administration. We left a Republican. Who knows what it's going to be in 24, 28, 32. But you obviously have to sail above all those winds in a way, if I'm not mistaken. Well, we had a strategy in place to move towards EVs under Republican administration, obviously the prior administration, and we're continuing that strategy under this current Democratic administration, and we will continue it under the next administration, whether they're Republican or Democrat, mainly for two reasons. It's still our mission to create a world that has zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. This is that strategy for us, and EVs is the way that we're going to get there, and we're going to do that working with whatever administration is in place at the time. And there would be multiple as we make this journey over the next 12 to 13 years as well. For sure, we have to do it because it's the strategy for General Motors. And of course, we're always going to work with our partners in government. And again, just flying off some things you just said, I understand certainly how EVs lead to, you can aspire to zero emissions, and uh, with different safety, because the safety in, in cars now is extraordinary, the things that you have. I love all the safety features in cars. But how does your plans, whether EV or anything else, how do you address the question of zero congestion? That seems to be something that's out of control of the car manufacturer to me. How do you address that? Once again, like everything else, it does take an entire environment. But what we're saying with that is, Upon our, our EV platform, we are also going after an autonomous vehicle, and we're building autonomous vehicles. The world in, in an autonomous situation where you have all or significant number of autonomous vehicles that are speaking to each other and monitoring traffic conditions, uh, continually redirecting traffic to keep it flowing smoothly, those are the things that we think enable zero congestion because vehicles and the road even and the use of technology will allow traffic to flow more seamlessly than just what it is today where we're all barreling down 75 or all barreling down 23 and not realizing that there are alternative routes that may be quicker. And with an autonomous vehicle, the vehicle will make that assessment and take that path. And of course, autonomous vehicles, you have the same EV aspirations for autonomous as well as regular. But is there any way to predict? Are there any thoughts out there about at any particular point, maybe 2035, when you're all EV, 
what percent of the vehicles that you're producing will be autonomous and what percent will not be autonomous? Or, or is anybody, are you letting the market and demand just determine that as time goes on? I don't have a prediction for that, Tim, but I can tell you that autonomous vehicles are much closer to reality in our future today versus 2035. For example, we are already running aut- autonomous, working through a cruise organization, autonomous vehicles in San Francisco, in Phoenix, in Austin, Texas, and they're operating in, in real traffic, in real situations without drivers. That is a reality. And the fact is your son one day will have a vehicle show up in his driveway and pick him up and take him to work. And then it'll drive off and do five other things and come back and get him at five o'clock, take him to the grocery store, take him home, and then take off to do five other things overnight to only to come back and get him at seven o'clock in the morning. That reality, that capability and technology exists. It exists with our partnership with Cruise, and we're going to be building on that in this decade strongly. That's really cool. I had another podcast with another Kettering GMI graduate. He was a Kettering graduate, and he runs a company called Applied Intuition, I think it's called. And they make a lot of the software for autonomous vehicles. And that was a very interesting discussion. I'm personally looking forward to the time when I can get behind the wheel and take a nap and take a trip at the same time. By the way, we are talking with Gerald Johnson, Executive Vice President of Global Manufacturing and Sustainability at General Motors. And and to this point, we've been talking about the electrified future, if that I can use that term, and GM's plans and aspirations. Let's move to the uh, sort of the other part of your job title, sustainability, which also applies to um, you're very involved in equity, diversity, and inclusion. And you have said that, or not you, but I mean, General Motors has said it has an aspiration to become the most inclusive company in the world. Can you tell me what that means? Can you unpack that aspiration for me? Sure. Uh, First of all, uh, we realize that it's an opportunity given the workforce that's available to us today for us to be ever more innovative, correlated to being ever more diverse and inclusive. And so it starts with us internally to General Motors, identifying and making sure that all of our systems are making it equitable for women, LGBTQ, different ethnicities to thrive inside of General Motors and be included in every function and every decision process because we know that inclusive decision-making is actually more beneficial and more obviously the ideas are broader that allow us to find better options and solutions. That's really important to us inside of General Motors, but we also know that we are a citizen inside of of a country or in the places where we do business. And so we're also connecting with other organizations to make sure that those opportunities for people to be trained in STEM are diverse. For people to come out of very diverse backgrounds and get an opportunity to be trained in, in coming to work for General Motors. We're a part of an organization called 110, that's corporations that have committed to work to have 1 million Black Americans over the next 10 years trained and prepared and in jobs that are family sustaining. That's part of our diversity and inclusion work outside of our four walls inside General Motors. But again, it all starts at home. So when we talk about our aspiration to be the most inclusive company in the world, it's really so that everyone 
coming into General Motors feels completely free uh, to express themselves and to bring their best selves to work and their best ideas to bear, but also for us to help that become more of reality outside of General Motors as well by how we touch our communities that we do business in. That strikes me that there's really two parts. The first thing that people always think about is the hiring part, where you are making sure that you're hiring a diverse workforce. But what you were just speaking to there is, and I'd like to hear more, that there is a lot of work processes, systems, practices internally in the workforce that are different than 20 years ago to work with and to ensure sensitivity, sharing with others who may not look like or sound like you. Am I correct with that? Oh, absolutely. And we've increased the amount of training that we're providing to all of our workforce to be open to the conversations and open to the interactions that allow diversity to thrive inside of our organization. And in doing so, we enable people or we invite people, quite frankly, to be their best selves, the self that's going to show up to work and allow their best ideas to come to bear on everything that we're working on and everything that we're trying to do, not the least of which is an all EV future and autonomous. But that's how we're going to build an organization that we think will be top shelf and able to produce the kind of innovation we need to be successful in the future. Those systems in place, we we put in place a chief diversity officer for the first time in General Motors. And in that, we're building an organization that is going to help each other function in organization, understand where it has opportunities to grow in diversity, equity, inclusion, and to give them the tools to understand it better and then allow them to, all of us, I should say, to grow in diversity, equity, inclusion so that we can actually live up to that aspiration. Our Chief Diversity Officer, Telva Magruder, is doing a fantastic job supporting our efforts to become the most inclusive company in the world. And that is actually different in the United States. We have, you know, you think of a dominant, which is not anymore really, or, or soon not to be, Caucasian population, and, and you factor in different ethnicities, races, and you think about LGBTQ, but in another, you're all over the world. So in countries that you're in, it's a different sort of diversity than the one here. Am I correct on that? Yeah, absolutely correct. But yet there's still a diversity, equity, inclusion opportunity in all the countries we do business in. Because in every country, there is some underrepresented population that we can tap into and bring to the table and make them feel confident and comfortable and being a part of what General Motors is getting done, whether we're talking India or uh, Brazil, or Mexico here in Canada. In fact, the Yashua facility that we launched again this past year has almost 60% female population now in that facility. So it's diversity everywhere. And again, it's recognizing there's a diverse population in the communities that we are doing business in, and there should be a diverse representation in the work that we're doing inside of General Motors. And those two things go hand in hand, and we stay connected both inside and outside to make that true. I think a lot of people, when they think about this topic, diversity, equity, and inclusion, think that companies are participating as part of a larger cultural trend. And that may be true to some extent, but in point of fact, if you could cite for me some of the thoughts, my understanding is that there's a lot of research and studies that say that a diverse company is, in fact, 
a better company, however you determine better, than one that is less diverse. Can you speak to the the business benefits of diversity? I think uh, Harvard Business Review has done several studies and articles on this very fact, and that yes, businesses that are more diverse tend to perform better than businesses that are not. The real art and science of that is being able to bring first diversity to the table, and then second to work to make sure that they're able to present their best ideas with confidence like everyone else around the table so that you get these better ideas or more ideas and options, solutions for your company to to benefit from. And so we believe in that data and we believe in those studies and we're we're seeing it here. The most recent article that I had seen talks about the benefit of a room having 50% female and 50% male in it to be able to generate its best ideas and best performance. So there's a lot of data out there that talks about the power and benefit of diversity, and we believe it. And we're seeing it as we grow in our own diversity, equity, inclusion journey as well. One of the most entertaining and seemingly common sense anecdotes I ever remember about that is that when vans were being developed and so on, they brought in a lot more women engineers, designers, because there was a lot of women taking kids to school and so on, not that men didn't, but you know they came up with a lot of things that are needed in that vehicle that the male population wasn't necessarily sensitive to. And that struck me as, you know, I never thought of that at the time, but it struck me as, well, duh, you know, that makes sense. That's an anecdote, which is kind of stupid and simple, but it seemed to me to make sense. No, it does make sense when you realize that women directly or indirectly affect 85% of all vehicle purchase decisions. And whoever's driving the vehicle, you have ought to have somebody back in the manufacturer invested in the design and features of that vehicle who matches the consumer who's going to be driving that vehicle. It has affected uh, colors that we consider. It has affected storage areas and how we place it. It has affected ergo and, and HMI for not just men now, but also for women. So, yeah. That's really responding to the reality of your customer base as much as it is diversity from the inside. Well, pivoting back, one other question I have kind of, we've talked about electrification. We've talked about the transition and and your investment in more efficient combustion engines through four plants. You just invested almost a billion in to help get through electrification. And we've talked about diversity. But in all of that, we're talking about the future. We're talking about 10, 15, 20 years in the future. As somebody who's been in this industry for so long and has been sitting very near the top of of one of the most companies leading the way to this future, are there other things that that we as consumers ought to know besides electrification, diversity, on the way things are going to be different? Autonomous vehicles, of course. Are there other things out there in the midterm, which I call 10 to 20 years, or even in the far term, I guess somebody would guess, well, when are we going to get the flying cars? But what else am I missing in major factors for the future besides the topics we've talked about now? Or maybe that's it mostly. Well, Tim, certainly that's what's on our plate right now. And that's going to be on our plate for the next decade easily as we transform to an all EV future. But there's also technology like fuel cell technology. There is an EVOS that we put on display two years ago, I believe, in, at uh, CES, uh, where we showed a, a EV air transport 
And there are companies that are looking at that as air taxi availability. Uh, so those things are out there. I think uh, right now for us, you know, just throwing it out to the 2035 and, and what we have on the table, we have battery technology, which is not done. I expect the technology around batteries to continue to evolve. We have fuel cell technology. We have autonomous technology. And that's a lot to do right now in front of us. And that, quite frankly, is more change in our industry in this decade alone than we've seen over the last 50 or 60 years, for sure. I know you have a, a futures area that, that just looks into all kinds of things. I always think that's fascinating to see what's down the road, but everybody looks at 25 and I'm wanting to look at, well, what's this going to be like in 100 years? But that's kind of silly because nobody knows. It's changing too fast. And I guarantee you that I understand that that what we're doing now is greater change, and I've been around long enough to know, than there has been in decades, in four, five, six decades. This is really changing. So before we close, tell me a little bit, you've been at General Motors for quite a while. You started there when you were at General Motors Institute, now Kettering, with your co-op. So tell me a little bit about your journey. Did you... Very few people at this stage of their careers could have said 40 years ago that I wanted to get to this exact spot. So tell me a little bit about your journey and and how you ended up, how you started and how you ended up where you are now. Sure. I was fortunate to start with General Motors and my journey as a co-op student at then GMI, uh, now Kettering, at 17 years old. That's my first starting point in a plant. I started as a co-op student in what was then a fisher body plant just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, which is my hometown. And um, I can tell you, I can remember standing in the aisleway talking to a couple of my colleagues and each of us projecting what we wanted to do or wanted to be. And at that time, I just wanted to be a plant manager because and a plant manager was what you saw the most as a leader who had the ability to affect and the responsibility, quite frankly, for the well-being of thousands potentially of people in the plant. And that was probably my goal at that particular starting point. Afterwards, it's not so much a goal. It's just so much of a passion for manufacturing. I really enjoy what I do. I really have enjoyed my career path, which has primarily been in manufacturing. I've done some things in quality and quality engineering and, and labor relations as well. And I've done some things overseas that have broadened me. But my passion is the safety, well-being, development, and performance of, at this time anyway, roughly 93,000 manufacturing people around the world. That's my focus and that's my privilege, quite frankly. And the journey has really been taking on new assignments and new experiences and being willing to challenge both myself and accept the challenges put in front of me, which is what I encourage everyone to do, especially if you're a graduate of Kettering. You're certainly smart enough. You can go out there and uh, face the world and face challenges that have unknown solutions as yet and lean into them. Well, it strikes me that, and and you were, what, I assume a mechanical engineer is where you started? Is that right? Actually, no, I was a manufacturing administrative uh, student at Kettering. Uh-huh. And then I subsequently went and got my master's in operations from MIT, uh, Sloan School, again, with the support of General Motors. And obviously, I've done a number of uh, different kinds of training sessions, inclusive of Harvard uh, training sessions to help broaden me uh, and to prepare me for the role that I have today. And what advice, and, and you sort of just did it, but what advice would you give students at Kettering, students elsewhere who 
want to, who aspire for the automotive, now mobility industry, or people who are young in their career, what do you think they uh, ought to be thinking about in terms of their aspirations and how to get where they want to go? Well, first of all, I will say this. There's no better time in the recent history of the automobile industry for new engineers, new talent to come aboard and be a part of this transformation. There are problems that are yet to be solved and all of them are intriguing and they're all about changing an industry that quite frankly affects the world. So first of all, lean into this industry because I believe you'll be thrilled and challenged consistently and you can have a great career. The second piece is lean into the toughest problems that you can find. Particularly at Kettering, I would say about the generation coming up, they're, they're hugely intelligent. And so leaning into the unknown is where you're going to find how strong and how creative you can become and how creative you can be as a part of a team to solve something that you may never even thought you could solve or something as complex as autonomous vehicles and all the variables that come into play there. These are the kinds of things that we need young, creative, innovative minds coming on board. And please, 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 and I'll say this to those graduating, look back and find the next generation of STEM talent because there's so much more out there. And I still don't think we're discovering all that we can of our STEM talent, particularly in the United States. And each one of us that have come through that, that journey, I think should go find someone and make sure we can inspire them to come along the journey as well because we can utilize all the innovators that we can as we move forward as a country and as we move forward as an industry. I got to believe that innovation is the key word with all the change going on. I can't imagine anything more exciting than thinking about where autonomous vehicles or electric vehicles or any of the other things we've talking about are going to go. And it's going to need creative, innovative people. So, and I think it must be fun for you to sit where you're sitting and overseeing a lot of this manufacturing and also uh, tending to the sort of sociology of the workforce with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So thank you for all of that. Thank you for being a, um, a loyal alum of Kettering and uh, Executive Vice President, Global Manufacturing and Sustainability, Gerald Johnson. I appreciate your time being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I've enjoyed it. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.